0: what's up everybody thank you for joining uh the inaugural Masari happy hour twitter spaces before we start i wanted to start with a quick disclaimer all opinions expressed by our hosts and our guests are merely their own opinions they do not reflect any endorsements or opinions of their companies this discussion is meant for informational purposes only you should not take their opinions as investment advice as you will be solely responsible for your own investment Hosts and guests may hold cryptocurrencies discussed in this Twitter spaces. Additionally, certain Masari employees are required to disclose their holdings, which is uploaded monthly and available at our website. I've taken the liberty of sharing that up top, um, so you can go directly to that tweet and link. Without further ado, gentlemen, kick it off. Hey, how's it going, everyone?
1: What's up? Mike, Kunal, Tom, James.
2: Yeah, all good. You guys can hear me?
1: Yep, all set. Tom, what you been thinking about?
3: Oh, Tom, we cannot hear you.
1: (laughs)
2: Is it me? We don't hear Tom, do we?
1: I think he might be having a technical difficulty.
3: Okay, I'll answer for him. Tom's been thinking about the merge, <laughs> and Tom's been thinking about optimism and all the roll ups. All the roll ups. All the all the roll ups. Is it um, is it is it roll up season? What are all right? You I think we can kick it off with the, the
2: um, like the optimism airdrop, right? Yeah, so uh, I think so Tom okay. had something to share, share about that, but um. How I've been thinking about it is that, A, I think it's very hard to game the airdrop. So we saw that the criteria that they used was very specific and quite hard to game. Uh, I have been recommending on our calls that, I mean, I think you have to be a legitimate user to um, to to get these airdrops. And making like hundreds of accounts is sort of, uh, I, I think, negative EV. Uh I don't know what you guys are thinking, but I think Arbitrum is going to use like a similar approach. In that, not this exact approach, because I'm sure some people will try to do this, like sort of weekly, uh, you know, weekly uh, interactions with the protocol. But um, yeah, so what do you guys think?
3: I think probably the most effective mechanism was they had like a multiplier, right? So Mike, you're on mute too. Wait, can you hear me? No, I can hear. Him. Oh, okay oh sorry i'm sorry (laughs) they had like uh they had like a multiplier so like you know i if i'm not mistaken you know you met one category and got x op allocation you met a second category you got you know another op allocation but the fact that you met two was like a multiplier and and i think that adds like a more civil resistant like layer to the to the reward schema because it's very easy to like you know, civil farm, some transactions on a thing, but not everybody's going to take the step to like civil farm, get coin grants or, you know, civil <laughs> farm, you know, these kind of niche bridging behaviors and like certainly sized wallets like that level of complexity, like rewarding those multipliers, I think really biases the allocation more towards individuals, which, which was definitely like a very positive uh, thing to see. Yeah. I like that. They reserved a lot of the, the airdrop for
1: like, future usage I think like one common uh critique I have of airdrops a lot of times is that you're rewarding like past behavior when you know in reality you want to reward future behavior and so um I, I think what it was like 5% that they gave retroactively which is I think a fine number I think like the, it, it's like uh a, a combination of like instilling goodwill uh but also not making sure you uh you know, give up too much of what can be a powerful incentive mechanism moving forward. Does anyone think that 5% was too little? Or too much?
4: So sorry, can you guys hear me? Hey, Tom. You're good, Tom. Sorry about that. Um, Yeah, so I missed a little bit of the first part of the conversation, but I think you know, 5% is an interesting number, right? I think the the most important thing is they made sure that it wasn't gamed, right? There's a lot of ways to get it between transactions you could have done being a repeat user, being a Gitcoin donor, whatever it was. Um, But the key thing is they were aiming to make sure that there wasn't a lot of people who were able to game it. And they're sort of like future-proofing it by having another 14% that other folks actually try to get by interacting with the network by some unforeseen... um, sort of uh you know things they might be doing so i think it's interesting to see you know folks experiment with these new kind of airdrop mechanisms right and trying to incentivize behavior i think the the most interesting thing that these guys are doing or thinking about is they think this new model that they're laying out could be sort of a vision statement for all of you know crypto and airdrops kind of going forward so so what is that it's like these two houses they they've uh, sort of built. And they call it call uh, one the token house, one the citizen house. And it's essentially one is supposed to focus on short-term objectives, one's supposed to focus on more long-term objectives. Um, and I, I guess the cynic in me says that sort of just sounds like shareholders on a board. But, you know, I think in general, they think this sort of new model could align short-term stakeholders and longer-term stakeholders. Um so, you know, what what does that mean for the sort of token environment as, you know, I think the biggest question in my mind is like, I think this probably kicks off what a lot of us think could be like L2 token wars 2.0. And then sort of how do we think about positioning for for kind of that environment? So I think this is the first in in a good experimentation and something that we're going to see moving forward, you know, a lot. So it is a kickoff sort of a broader
3: I think there's lots of like tiered approaches nowadays to just governance in in general. Right. So kind of tagging off of your citizen versus token holder, that kind of split that they're running with the token. You see the same thing now with like the, the vote lock tokens. Like, so convex, you can state convex and just get the economic rewards or you can time lock convex and you get more like governance allocation of gauges rewards, but you have to commit for that time to the protocol. So I think like, these more mature, it's you know, it's kind of I guess it's kind of cringe sometimes to move towards TradFi and stuff like that. But look, the shareholder versus board model is so prolific across companies because it's worked because it's been a good way to balance the fact that different participants in a system have different incentives and goals. So taking a split view is kind of almost a like more mature way of doing things.
1: Yeah, I'm not against the. Like progressive decentralization, I think generally like that's what most uh, projects optimize for, just because it it makes sense to have some sort of coordination, uh, especially at the beginning. Um, and so, like, I, I think like that model has been like fairly adopted, and I, I don't necessarily see that changing. Um, I think the the most interesting part to me on the like the upcoming uh, like quote unquote like L two wars is where. Certain L2s decide to compete and go to market? Like, are they going to optimize for DeFi, optimize for NFTs, optimize for uh, a different uh, market? And so that's something that's like top of mind for myself.
4: Yeah. And I, I think in that, like, where does the value occur, right? Does the value accrue to the L2 token or is it like the FAT protocol thesis, right? Like, the L1 sort of wins out. Um, you know, it, it, it's tough to say right now. I think. Optimism is going to have a nice head start because it's going to have a lot of mind share as it kind of goes forward. And if you start to look at you know how other sort of L2 tokens have been in sort of market value, you're, you're likely going to see a $1 billion plus total valuation, um, at least at least to start. Uh, so it's going to be sizable. Um, and you know I think others might be able to sort of chip into that as we move forward. But at the outset, Optimism is going to have all the mind share. So they're going to have the opportunity to really steer the ship here.
2: Yeah, yeah. So, uh, so, so yeah, uh, no. I, uh, I had like a valuation model, like a suggested valuation model maybe for Optimism already, so uh, let me know what you guys think. So, uh, you know, we know that the revenue, uh, as Optimism sees it, is going to be of the value genera- generated of the sequencer, so essentially what MEV does the sequencer generate and um, we can compare that with what Ethereum is doing right now, right? So if you go to flashbots.net explore.flashbots.net you can see that ethereum did about like 2000 eth worth of mev in the last 30 days so that's like 6 million dollars that mev was generated on ethereum and 99% of that is on is on dexes so uh you scroll down a bit and you see uh uniswap v3 uniswap v2 both of them are like more than 90% of the of the uh, of the MEV generated and Balancer and Bancor and such are like the remaining like nine or so percent. So um in my opinion, MEV is like, I mean, this DEX MEV is generated off of the depth of the liquidity pools, right? So if you have like a hundred billion in 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 liquidity, you can Uh, you will need that, that many more funds to move the, move the XY into K equation. And, um, that's, that's like sort of the MEV that you can generate. So if you just compare the TVL on uh, Uniswap on Ethereum versus the TVL on Uniswap on Optimism, I think you can get a rough estimate of what the, what the MEV can be on, uh, on Optimism. And I mean, right now it's about, percent So the unit EVL on uh, Optimism is 44 million, and the unit EVL on ETH is 7 billion. So that's like about half a percent. And uh, if you if you put that to with the with the with the MEV, so half a percent of 6 million is about like I mean uh, the calculation is about like 40k, and that's your monthly revenue on Optimism. So I mean, you can add like a, you can put like a multiple to it, but uh, multicoin gave this uh, valuation model where the value of the network is uh, the present value of all future MEV, right? So if let's say ETH is doing uh, you know, uh, twenty no sorry, two hundred times the uh, two hundred times the MEV of uh, Optimism, then the network should be valued at two hundred times of. Optimism, car Ethereum is valued at about 350 billion. So, Optimism is valued at about 2 billion, in my opinion. So, I mean, this is like a rough calculation. Uh, it doesn't assume any costs because I think costs are sort of paid out in Optimism tokens. So, the 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 um, the developing entity, the uh, you know the the Uniswap Labs of Optimism is being paid in uh, Optimism tokens. I think uh, transaction costs are paid for by the user. So, there's all of it like sort of flows through, and th- there is no cost, uh, and the revenue is the profit. So. Yeah, that's like my rough uh, valuation model for optimism.
1: Interesting. Do you think that like same model tracks to uh, other L twos, or do you think it's like to, does the model have to specifically change based on like if it's arbitrum or immutable or uh, you know a different L two?
2: I think that's a, that's a good question if they have the same tokenomics as uh, optimism right so right now i i don't see anything on optimism for like staking and like owning more of the network where which would add like you know supply and demand dynamics to it but uh but i mean if they use the same tokenomics i think i think that's how you value them i think uh, also this assumes that you know uh the the, the valuation model given by Multicoin, which is the, you know, uh, the network should be valued at the present value of all future MEV. That's like, you know, I mean, that it makes sense to me intuitively. Uh, I I can go over it, but I think most people have like sort of, um, uh, you know, they know of it and why that makes sense. So, I mean, I, I think it makes some sense. And even if like, you know, even if you don't want to adopt that model, if you just say that 40k is the current revenue, you can you can you know you can model some uh, TVL growth on Uniswap right on on Optimism. You can you know it'll be incentivized a bit more you know with their future airdrops. Uh, people will people will like conduct more of their business on Optimism. I can ex I, I can like actually I see it going to like up to like ten percent of ETH too at at some point. I mean not like immediately not in the next year but. Uh, so some sub some, sometime like ten percent of ETH is a, I think a very, very achievable target. And then you get like essentially ten percent of ETH as your as your market cap. And uh that that would be like very, very um that would be very, very big.
4: Yeah, I think one of the tricky things, and you kinda of mentioned it there, is a value accrual, right? So they're getting all the value as revenue from the sequencer right now. And that revenue is then sort of disseminated by the mechanism of um one of the houses here, and they actually, you know, vote on where to disseminate it through the protocol. So, you know, theoretically, that should all filter down back to the token. But there is a gating mechanism there to, to sort of say where that money goes, and um, you know, that that can sort of change at any time. Um, so that's just another variable to be aware of. And you know, if you assign a risk premium to that, great. But it's just just another thing that's um, a little different about this one.
2: one. Yeah, yeah, that's absolutely right. So, uh, I mean. F- great point of course like uh, you know as as an individual you don't earn the future MEV so you're you should apply like a bit of a discount to it. Uh If if the funds aren't being utilized well enough, you apply a larger discount to it. It's like, you know, I mean, the idea is that uh, theoretically, the money that's being pumped into the Optimism Network to grow it will uh, lead to, uh, you know, like the same amount of growth as at least the amount of capital put in. But yeah, absolutely, you can put like a bit of a discount to it because it's not your money. Like it's some like liquidity discount, 20%, or like if it's worth managed, then 40, 50, whatever you want. Yeah, just to
5: I go for
4: it. Yeah, just to give some perspective on some of the, you know, TVL on other L2s, right? So Optimism is like half a million or so. You know, Loopring is like 300 million. Their market cap on their tokens is like a billion. You know, Metis is like 150 million. Their market cap on their tokens a little higher than that but about the same. Boba is like 50 million. Their market cap on their tokens like 175 million. Um mm. You know, trading sort of three to five x at least on those those few immutable. You know, sixty million on their TVL, um, you know, four hundred million on their market cap. So that's that's sort of the range I think, depending on what the TVL kind of shakes out, which which I think drives with what your initial um, rough estimate is as well. You know, interesting on the uh, you
1: said immutable is uh, sixty million because I think they um, over the past like sixty days they did, like, 70 million in NFT volume. Um, And so, like, I think that's, like, an interesting disconnect. Um, That could just be, like, how I imagine that stats from, like, DeFi Llama or something. So it could just be if it's, like, indexed differently. Um, But that's interesting. And I think that, like, brings up, like, interesting points in terms of you have a lot of these L2s competing for the same market share. Um, You know, I imagine, like, Uniswap is a big portion of the TVL on both Arbitrum and Optimism.
2: Yeah, like I think. Uh, I mean, I think Immutable X uh, X's uh, TVL can't be compared because it's like uh, you know it's not like sort of general purpose EVM, but uh, like things like Metis, I think uh, Arbitrum Optimism should be. Um, I think. I mean, in my opinion, I think uh, one way that like I mean uh, Arbitrum should now. Perhaps compete. I think we saw like sushi put a lot of pressure on uni, and I I can expect like maybe the Arbitrum token coming out like fairly soon. Like I mean, I think an announcement from them would would now be like I mean I, I would I would guess like within like a month or two. So um, it should be very very interesting. What if, if like you know if L2 wars now start? What sort of uh, incentivization plans they they give? Optimism hasn't made it very clear what like the future airdrops will look like if Arbitrum tries to buy um, buy more activity buy more sort of uh, you know TVL um, would be very interesting,
1: yeah, I feel like it's a little different though, because like in the context if you think of of like uniswap was was kind of their hand was forced to issue a token just because it was like very much a vampire uh, mining attack versus like I don't know that uh, optimism is like sure they'll be competing on on some protocols, but uh, I think the the strategies of incentivizing adoption are a little more uh, targeted, and so like rather than just uh, go after like retail capital uh, incentivizing adoption, I think they'll probably offer grants and go a more uh, you know specific approach, which like Arbitrum or Nel two could like theoretically do uh, even before their token launched.
2: Yeah, yeah. So, we're definitely- just like, I mean, uh, yeah, I mean, just I think the valuation you get after the token launch will be, I mean, the, the amount of funds that you will have at your disposal post-token launch will be much more, I imagine, than uh, before one. And, you know, if, if uh, Optimism starts like a like an ecosystem grant like some of the other layer ones had, right, like Solana, Avalanche, Polygon, uh, I think it, it could, uh, I mean, it could take, like, the market lead of, like, L2s away from Arbitrum and uh, I think then we see something there.
3: What yeah, do definitely. you guys think about the actual long-term so short-term, you know, let, 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 let the DJs do what the Dgens want to do. But what do you guys think <laughs> of the actual long-term prospects here? Right? Because in at the base level, your our optimism token is being swapped for some Ethereum. So sequencers can commit the data of the rollups to the l1 right and then essentially you're just it's a fee split right which is how you're getting all these cheap fees but you're you're anchoring in some sense like that relationship between the price of optimism to the price of ethereum at some you know ratio depending on on usage here so you know say it cost me a hundred dollars to commit my block as a roll-up and say i you know, I'm requesting $150 of Optimism token. So, you know, Optimism protocol is essentially arbing $50 there. But the, the problem with with arbitrage on things that are known how to do is, is people take those away, right? Like if somebody launches Optimism and they're charging a 50%, you know, fee to commit cost premium, someone's going to come along and launch a 42%. And then someone's going to come along and launch the 30%, the 20% until we're arbitraged to, to bare minimum. And then at that point, once you're you're running at such a small actual premium, you know you're essentially just, I imagine, trading at some essentially pseudo pegged to ETH. So long term, do these tokens even make sense? Because then once you're pseudo pegged to ETH at just a small premium, you might as well just use ETH like you were originally. So do you think there's any long term logic to actually having? A token for the rollups, like it's fun. We all love exit liquidity, and a lot of people have invested money in this. But you know, long term, <laughs> do the economics pan out?
4: Tom, thoughts, you
3: know, or I can I, go.
4: I, I think it's pretty tough to see the economics panning out, especially with optimistic rollups. Personally, um, you know, I think zk maybe, but it, it, it's hard for me not to just see all the value accruing to the L1 eventually. I think there's others who would who would certainly disagree with me, but I I don't, I, I see this as more of a you know short term shaking out um, rather than a longer term play.
1: I mean the the question on like the the other side is like what type of of value uh, are you providing? Um, whether it's in terms of security, whether it's in terms of liquidity, network effects, and does that demand some sort of premium? Uh, I think you can make an argument that it can and it really just depends because like the 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 end state like who knows how it plays out but like I kind of imagine that you'll get certain applications that pool to certain chains um, whether that's like uh, a whole category uh, like lending or like a whole sector like DeFi Um, and so I think that's kind of like where the interesting question lies because if you have all this liquidity locked say the whole DeFi ecosystem is on top of Arbitrum or optimism for Ethereum, like, is that competitive enough in itself for that type of uh, value extraction? I so, don't have uh, an answer.
4: <laughs> we, yeah, it'd be nice if we had, we had all the answers here. We'd, we don't, unfortunately, hopefully you guys got the optimism airdrop. I, <laughs> Successfully gamed out of the system. I did a transaction on Optimism, and I think you needed to do two <laughs> transactions. So they were successful in locking me out uh, and only awarding actual users. So good on them. Um, I'm gonna I'm gonna pivot here though. If you guys are good to the merge, take it away. Which, yes, yes, I love it. So I think we have a tweet end up, uh, Doug. But you know, you guys are all familiar with the merge. Now I think, and the real tough part has obviously been the timeline. It's been, you know, I think started back in 2017 when merged 2019, and now we're in 2022. We're still not here. Um, something that's given me sort of more optimism, you know. Obviously, we've launched sort of multiple sort of uh, forks of you know different shadow nets to, to sort of uh, test a lot of this stuff. But uh, Justin Drake, who I think you guys are a lot of are pretty familiar with. He's a researcher at the Ethereum Foundation. He has a pricing model for ETH, uh sort of a yield model, um, you know, in the proof of stake world, what would you yield in sort of an optimistic and sort of a conservative scenario. Um, and he tries to time the merge in in that model. And this model's been around for quite some time, um, and I'm sure many of you have tracked it. And you know his model used to have a huge swath of months of when the merge could actually potentially occur it was you know something like june to december and the ethereum foundation researchers met in amsterdam last week and right after that meeting justin drake updated his model to just make the merge actually occur in his model only from august 1st to august 31st so I don't know if I'm reading too much into that, but it seems like an interesting um, time and uh, to actually update that in a, in a very specific uh, period.
5: Um,
4: so I guess I'd, first of all, love to get your feedback uh, on that. Maybe I'll start with Mike. And then, um, you know, what are your thoughts on, on how to think about the merge and potentially how to
3: think about it as, as an investment opportunity? Yeah, so as far as uh, merge timing, I'm just going to put my hands up and say, it'll it'll happen when it happens. I've seen enough people get that one wrong to not want to hop into, hop into that pit. But as far as, I'm I'm with Mike on that. Yeah, yeah, exactly. As, as far as how it changes, um, uh, Ethereum basically, I I think like, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll make an analogy that, that I think is, is, is pretty consensus at this point, but, it really sets a a risk-free rate in the ecosystem, right? So, you know, historically in the past, you know, we're all buying and selling and trading and and having fun and and yield farming and all that stuff, but you're kind of untethered, right? You're essentially just creating whatever speculative model you want, or you're looking at CoinGecko and saying, well, this is rank 50 and this is way cooler. So when it passes, you know, all those silly websites are like, what is X at X market cap, basically? But I think now once you have successful operation proof of stake ethereum and you have ethereum yield denominated in ethereum you've officially set the bar so if ethereum's giving me 7% i'm just making up numbers here but if ethereum's giving me 7% and you know not picking on any protocols here but why deposit at compound for less than 7 why deposit at like alpha homora for less than 7 right you've offici- you've officially raised that bar of performance on the network so, you know, I think um, a lot of projects and protocols are, are in for a little bit of a surprise when all of a sudden you can get close to double-digit yields on what I think is an asset that most people are just natively pretty, pretty bullish on. So it, it, in my mental model, it, it causes a pretty sharp repricing of a, of a vast majority of assets. And, you know, maybe if a protocol's revenue is tied to ETH they're a little more isolated from that. But if a protocol's revenue is tied to a lot more of these tokens, you know, maybe you're a little less isolated to that comparative devaluation.
2: I love it. Although, I mean, I think Mike uh, 100% agree, but I think, uh, Tom, would you say that this is now the risk-free rate for like the Ethereum ecosystem. I don't know about the crypto ecosystem, but definitely the Ethereum ecosystem. And then the, I mean, I think it may put negative price pressure on everything on ETH. So whether it's NFTs or like DeFi tokens, if I can get like 7% native yield on ETH, do I really need to be flipping Frank francs? You know, uh, I don't think it, uh, I don't always know if that's like-
1: You always have
4: to flip Frank francs you might you might want to disclose frank frank's you know
5: <laughs> Actually, I'll um yeah so i
3: with one, just I'm sorry to cut you off the, i'll throw one curveball or one wrench in the thing everybody kind of has consensus that if the 10-year yield went up to like 20 percent or something crazy it'd cause a lot of havoc is there such thing as ETH yield being too attractive where staking yield is too high and you're making too much money off of MEV, that now all of a sudden these other protocols can't siphon off any ETH, can't siphon off any investors, can't siphon any revenue, and you actually hurt the ecosystem because the yield is too attractive. Is that a possibility?
4: Yeah, I think that's a great point. I mean, what do we call it, the anchor problem right now? I think there is a level where it's too high, you know, what, what that level is, I'm not sure, but there has to be some risk premium assigned to ETH up and above treasuries, up and above, you know, equities, because there is a legit risk, um, you know, whether it be small or high or however you want to assign it, there's a risk that ETH, ETH goes away or that there's some, you know, unforeseen hack, even though it hasn't happened in almost eight years now, um. But I do think the longer it's around, you know, once we pass that sort of technical event risk, I think it becomes the sort of risk-free rate for the industry because it has that, you know, whatever, 8 to 12% yield. And I think it really just becomes like legit catnip for investors, right? Like, what do investors want? They want a yield. Like, what do they want? They want, you know, environmentally friendly sort of securities. Okay, great. You know, ETH is 99% more, um, you know, environmentally friendly. Uh, you know, it has an underlying, you know, potentially net deflationary currency. Like, it's just like the, the confluence of narratives, I think, around ETH and around the merge. Like, once it actually happens, the drumbeats are just going to be so large and the inflows will be, um, you know, so strong that I think there'll be enough money in the ecosystem to filter out to the other, you know, sort of protocols and participants that, you know, sort of liquidity won't be an issue because there'll be enough new inflows, and then you know the the rate won't be so punitively high that it'll sort of uh, you know detract from actual value in those other protocols. Um, but I'd be interested to hear what Mason thinks. I mean, I
1: agree with a lot of the what the points you guys are making. I think one like unique aspect is that like if you consider like yields you can get on ETH right now, um. You know, think about how most people are going to stake. That like either our institutions, or uh, if even if they're like more enthusiast investors, like there's some take rate that all those middlemen are going to provide. Like if you go stake uh, ETH or you know Atom or uh, you know any like and any asset that you can stake on Coinbase, they have some type of take rate, and it's actually like fairly significant. And so I wonder if like the yield will be significant for. Uh, those who are able to do it natively, but there's still going to be some sort of like ARB opportunity so that for your, you know, call it like average investor, it ends up being significantly less.
2: Uh, So I want to come in here and talk about Lido. So it is a significant holding for me, but um, I think it sits in... uh, in a pretty good spot on the decentralization curve right so it's not coinbase where it's like very centralized and it's not rocket pool or like individual validators where they won't be able to capture the uh, capture mev right so um, i think lido says like somewhere in the middle it takes like 10% which i think is a fair rate I, I, I mean mason you would say on atom you take about like a 5 to 10% on average on like the different validators
1: yeah so uh, so i'm staking atom on both uh kepler and coinbase and i think it's like 11 percent on kepler and a like 5, 5% four or five percent yeah on coinbase so that's like you know they're taking 50 percent of your yield which is like pretty significant
2: yeah exactly so uh, i mean lido takes like a like a flash 10% and 5% goes to the to the you know like to the treasury which accrues essentially value to the lido holder so i had a piece on it recently out in uh, out last week and i mean I, I think the case for it becomes like stronger as we move towards the merge tom you were asking how to play the merge i think lido is like one of the uh, key beneficiaries of it right now i think about like uh, 10 billion or something like somewhere around that is what is staked on ethereum and we can expect this to be much higher um, going forward, right? So on most of the other networks that are purely POS, like Polkadot, Solana, Cardano, you know, all of these, uh, they're all above like 50%. I think Terra is one which around 40%. So if you take like with 50% ETH being staked and Lido maintaining its like market share, there will be like, So, uh, 350 billion worth of ETH, 175 billion is staked, and 30% market share for Ladder gives it like 30 billion or something. So, yeah, somewhere around like 20 to 30 billion. That's going to be like 2 to 3Xing its current uh, market cap. And I think that's like very, very. I, I mean it's a it's a big trigger in my opinion I don't know if it's like priced in I don't think it is I, I mean my valuation model says that it isn't and even on like a conservative side I think uh it, there is upside so uh, that's just like my take I think it's a good way to play uh play the merge and it doesn't suffer the same sort of you know Mike brought up this point whether your yields are your yields are denominated in eth or like are more sort of on the long tail assets and Lido has like you know direct yields on eth
1: Yeah, I mean, I think Lido has a place in terms of of having, like, a more uh, decentralized, you know, staking provider. Um, But at the end of the day, like, sometimes it just comes down to owning the user. And, like, Coinbase, Kraken, like, any exchange is going to have, obviously, that user base, especially once they, like, compound a lot of these other features they have. And so, like, I'm not convinced that most individuals will go to uh, another option just because it provides a better yield, I think you'll get a, a certain portion that do, and, and any, like, uh, you know, enthusiast who is, like, fairly uh, even, like, non-technical will probably be able to stake with Lido or Rocket Pool or some other solution. But my intuition is that, you know, users usually sacrifice uh, capital and time for convenience.
2: I mean that's fair. I I don't think I disagree with I think uh we saw A16Z uh you know buy like Steth, essentially. I mean I don't even know how big their lidar position is but I think they buy they bought stealth through uh through uh fireblocks. So I think uh you can expect like institutional guys to come in and uh you know use these liquid derivatives instead of going through like a trusted solution like Coinbase or Binance and uh you know like the um, the I, I think the like on the legal side you should be like fine too if you're doing it through fireblocks whereas it may be more difficult than maybe like custody risk if you're doing it through coinbase and binance and such so I think um I mean I, I think that both sides I mean of course users are lazy and we haven't really seen like uh them necessarily adopt like uh, you know I mean transacting on chain but with like open c2 that if it like makes sense uh, they will um
4: yeah so I think institutions in particular are going to try to do it through something like a fire blocks and, you know, a little more sophisticated, right? And they're going to want to hedge the currency exposure because if you're locking in an ETH yield, you don't want to have that volatility. If you're thinking it's sort of going to be somewhat of a balance in your portfolio and you want to just capture that yield rather than play the price risk, you're going to need an intermediary to actually sort of like price out options for you to do that. So you're going to need a third party to kind of price it in. Other, other thing I'd say on sort of how to play the merge, you know, just and all the options are really thinly traded, especially for US investors. So it's really hard, but just like looking at some of the major options markets out there and observing what the pricing trends are, um, you know, the merge right now, at, you know, say it happens before the end of the year, options markets are pricing in only a 20% possibility of ETH hitting a new all time high this year. So, you know, I think we talk a lot about the merge, like everyone knows it's going to happen at least some point in this year. And it's so potentially bullish, but, you know, it doesn't seem like it's still priced in. So there's there's somewhat of an opportunity, whether, um, you know, you think it's going to happen or not. I think, you know, there's there's a lot of ways to play it out there
3: still. Rest in peace, uh, stock to flow, but it always had, you know, (laughs) it takes some time. Like, uh, I know there's lots of debates like, can you price in? true changes to supply and issuance dynamics and and who, who knows what it looks like. But, you know, typically if stock to flow was, was still kind of accurate, you know, it'd be you have the happening and then it takes some time for this to actually generate any response. So, you know, say merge happens end of year, say stock to flow kind of lagged response mindset takes six months after that. You can be... You know, like, and I don't even know what the options depth looks like that far out, or if you can even. I know, like Lira, you can only buy options on like a monthly basis. DopeX, you can. I mean, I'm talking about like decentralized methods of like looking at options and this kind of stuff. Like, it's the, it's pretty weak offerings to be honest. Like, they're all still just monthly. Like, no one's giving you long dated multi year call options on this kind of stuff. So it's kind of, it's it's kind of difficult. I I can see why the option prices aren't reflecting like a nice
2: reality there. Yeah, I mean, crypto markets aren't known to be uh, very efficient. So, I mean, Tom, to your point, when you brought up uh, the upgrade in Justin uh, Justin Drake's model, uh, on Polymarket right now, there's still like a 50-50 for it to happen by October 1. So, uh, I mean, you can, you know, you can, um, someone's so inclined and they can predict when uh, when the merge is going to happen. Uh, what uh, what is the can... depth
1: like on Polymarket? Polymarket for those who don't know is a uh, uh, predictions market.
2: Yeah. So yeah. So it's 150k Mason, uh, which is not low in my opinion. How much? Back to
5: the
3: oh, back to the Lido thing. How much design space do you guys think there is in the kind of like staking derivatives game? Right. So like on, on the most basic level, you're just off offering some tokenized receipt of a, of a deposit in you know an ETH validator but then you can go beyond like say Lido hits this crazy run rate they're printing all this ETH through their stake yield you know I as like a Lido user I would expect them to spend a lot of their revenue on developing MEV software and then I'd expect them to like share that MEV software with their validator so then Lido has the best yield in the game because they're running more advanced MEV software and then Coinbase and Kraken and then Everybody does that. And then now I'm like, okay, well, you, now you have to spend money on, um, like, integrations. Like, if you're a Lido and I'm, I'm using staked ETH or something, I want to be able to use it in lots of places. So you should issue some of your revenue as rewards to Alchemix. So then Alchemix integrates you. And then issue free token rewards to Compound. So Compound lists you. And then all of a sudden, you know, these competitive tests, these competitive pressures, because the design space is, I think, actually more open than a lot of people think again, it just kind of crushes, or not crushes is a strong word, but it definitely compresses the super high margins that you might think these these protocols actually get to run.
2: I think a counterpoint to that would be that uh, LIDO actually needs to have relationships with validators. So it's not like, I mean, it's not like easily forkable in the sense that, you know, your finance was, uh, and, and you just like, just like copy the code. So... Uh, I think there can be some like sort of um, uh, some defensibility there. Also, how how uh, pervasive it is across the DeFi ecosystem. I think it takes time. So even Reth right now, the Rocket Pool's Zeth, even that's not uh, available everywhere, right? Like Steth is way more accepted. So I think uh, those two things provided some defensibility uh, against like you know, I mean, against competition. Pretty much, so I I don't think you have to. So they're not; they don't need to pay Alchemix to integrate that. It already does, you know. It's it's the largest. Steth is already the largest. Ave already does it. I don't know if Compound does it, but so it's it's they're large enough for it to not for them to not have to pay their like Walmart, and they can squeeze. So my opinion is that they will squeeze the they can they can squeeze validators out later. So but right now they're paying five percent to the validators, but if they hold like significant amount of like you know uh, staked ETH, then All validators must go to Lido for a, you know, for, for their share of, of their stake teeth. And in then, in that case, I think Lido has the ability to squeeze the validators. Why pay them 5% when you can get away with like 4%, 3%, whatever cost basis they have, add like, you know, I mean, whatever cost plus 10%, cost plus 20% and manage their margins like Walmart does.
1: That's interesting. Yeah, I, I mean, it's almost kind of like, I mean, Lido will essentially like try and vertically and like vertically integrate down the Ethereum infrastructure stack. Uh, I think that there's like other interesting solutions that will be required for, you know, like ho- like horizontal type of infrastructure. So, like for whether it's like layer two tokens, whether it's like other tokens uh, that have some sort of lock period uh, that act as like a work token. As well so uh, i think that like lido probably won't compete on every single protocol um, and that they're definitely probably going to double down on eth
2: yeah okay so i'd have to like hate hate on my own like sort of uh, calls so uh so uh, lido's c- uh, considering a proposal <laughs> Uh, Ladders considering a proposal where it gives uh, steth holders, so staked Ether holders, uh, veto power over you know some some proposals. I think it's like it's very interesting in the sense that it makes sense that you what, know. What's an example? Uh, you, of like a proposal. Yeah, so let's say like I mean, uh, increasing fee to eighty percent, right? I mean, it's just hypothetical, but let's say there is a proposal like that that says that uh, I mean, you know, I, I acquire enough Lido uh, because I'm like a whale, and I will say that let's let's just push fees up to eighty percent, and uh, whoever whoever is too lazy to pull out a stick will keep like paying me, uh, you know, keep keep paying me their sort of uh, stake deals. So in 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 that case, it's uh proposing to give stealth holders the ultimate veto for some proposal decisions and i think it really takes away from the governance premium of lido so i mean we've talked about the cash flows that lido will get but uh, one thing that either the the governance here like you know the the uh, the zero value governance aspect of it gives like i mean the value comes from uh the stealth holders wanting to secure their rights so if i'm if i have a billion in steth staked through lido uh, i have some incentive to own the protocol, right? I don't want, uh, I don't want uh, Lido holders to take away like more of my, more of my staking yield. So I have like some incentive to buy Lido. And that's like, that's, I think, the case for, uh, that's the case for tokens that don't get, uh, cash flows like Uni. So if I have like, you know, like a significant amount of like UNI LP uh, tokens. I I have like an incentive to hold some UNI uh, UNI UNI tokens so that they don't take away like a lot of my a uh, lot of my transaction fee, right? Uh, the LP fee that I'm getting. So uh, I think giving giving this power to stealth holders takes away all of like the governance power that Lido has, and um I think negatively affects like yeah, I mean I would, I would say value uh, negative affects value for sure.
4: Yeah, I think. I mean, it's a centralization risk, right? And if, if nothing else, I mean, Lido is something like, what, 30% of, you know, ETH deposits right now, which is, you know, the biggest, really significant. So I think there is, at least if you are care about the centralization, I mean, we should care about sort of moving away from Lido, but, you know, it seems they have the best network effects right now. So that seems fairly unlikely to happen. Um you you guys are going to kind of want to pivot, pivot to uh, stable stablecoins. Coins. Um, so we've had, you know, sort of stable coin wars, which we talked about L2 wars before. Um, you know, we've had sort of the Terra ecosystem, you know, huge yields on Anchor, 20% plus. We had the recent launch of our, or, or upcoming launch of the, the Near token that looks like it's going to be 10%. You know, I think it was supposed to be even higher. Uh, Justin Sun from Tron, I think he... Said something like thirty percent yield over there, um, so I'd, I'd be interested to hear what you guys think about this sort of stable war, uh, stable coin war that's coming out, and, and and sort of who the winners, losers, or otherwise uh, will be.
1: I mean, I think that like that's a an interesting question. I don't know that there's going to be like one winner or loser. in in, like a specific regard. Um, I think like USDC has obviously done phenomenally well to date in terms of it's like adoption. I'm uh, curious. Uh, I think DAI has done like fairly well given that it's been like bootstrapped uh, based on like ETH as a collateral. And obviously like USDC is a a big portion of that collateral nowadays, which is like an interesting point as well. Um, I think like you can look at it from the perspective of like, what do consumers want? And that's going to be, like, the easiest stablecoin to interact with. So I think, like, the, the individual, like, uh, you know, exchanges, wallet providers uh, will have, like, a potential position in, in, like, if someone wants to use a stablecoin, what stablecoin are they using? Um, in regards to, like, other stablecoins, I don't really have, like, strong opinions yet on, on how that plays out. Mike, do you have I any mean, opinions
2: I'm, or canal? Yeah, I think uh stablecoins I, I think it probably has like one uh like one one large stablecoin project on each each protocol and perhaps USD uh connecting all of them through like the uh, you know through like through all the bridges. So I, I think it's unlikely right now. I mean, I, I was quite uh, worried about uh, you know USN and the Justin Sun stablecoin coming out because I thought a lot of uh, a lot of capital may move out of the mercenary capital in crypto may move away from uh, USDT, which would put pressure on like the price of Luna. But um, I think right now it doesn't seem like that's happening. Uh, Near said that I think they're going to give like ten percent and not twenty percent, which I don't see why anyone uh, goes there. Rather than just like f- keep farming USD on anchor so uh, I don't see how they're going to bootstrap their liquidity or like start their pool uh, when there is like a proven 20 percent available on anchor like you know like mul- many billions already there fairly safe as like as it goes in crypto I mean uh, yeah I-, I I think it's like USD is definitely the 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 king to take down.
6: Yeah, I think this is, um, just to chime in on stable coins. I think from a really high-level overview, those those protocols that can um, pivot to those more, um, basically provide that non-volatile risk for those that are looking to transact, um, th- those protocols are going to unlock so much more, uh, you know, more, less fear for those, uh, institutional investors and those that aren't as familiar with the space to kind of um, move liquidity around. But uh, I mean, yeah, from, from Luna standpoint too, it'll be interesting to see um, basically how you, you know, farming on, on anchor during a bear period, what's going to prevent the, <clears throat> the outflow of, 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 you know, UST from the protocol when, when you do move into a bear market. And, uh, um, I know Doquan's, uh, uh, Doquan LFG booting up uh four pool where, um, you know, essentially in efforts to, uh, dry up, die as, uh, as, um, yeah. after, but <laughs> yeah, the key.
4: The key is liquidity, right? right. So like you just said on it, like whoever can get the most liquidity is going to win. So, you know, and how do you do that? You spend on marketing, marketing. and all of these yields, in my are mind, are just a marketing expense at the moment. So if your marketing expense is like 20%, you better hope you are able to attract enough users with that 20% to hit sort of a exit velocity before, you know, you sort of implode at some point, right? And I think that's why I was sort of surprised to see at least Nears took and come out at ten percent because I don't know who wins in that. You know, it's not attractive enough to for you to come Tom. over. Sorry, God. Oh, are you still there? Can you hear me? Yeah. I uh, yeah I was surprised to see Nears like ten percent because you know who wins in that like who actually wants to come over for that for that yield when you can get that almost anywhere else and sort of uh, DeFi even you know farming sort of much safer. Uh, stable coins, um, you know, twenty percent seem to be a point that that folks are willing to jump over. Um, so you know, and if thirty percent actually comes out from Tron, I think we're all going to be um, a little surprised. So I think it's really just all about liquidity, right? right. Uh, and and who can sort of win with those marketing budgets to get the
3: most liquidity. I think it's a little it's a little bit more than like just a marketing budget too, though, right? Because the way you receive the yield on these. Is through deposits. So you're pulling, you know, US. I, you know, for fear of having the lunatics come at me here, UST has this beautifully large supply, but how much of it is actually exposed to peg risk because you've, you've deposited all of it in anchor, essentially, right? So, you know, yes, I agree with the, the like theme that it is a marketing expense, but also more than that, it's how you take UST off the market. So you only need to defend the peg against a smaller swap volume, right? So as far as like, have we seen an algo stable coin work? Uh, I don't, you know, I, I'm, I'm all for the VC transfer mechanism. If, you know, not to call it, if Galaxy Digital wants to keep <laughs> giving away money to everybody and, and Justin wants to start giving away money to people, hell yeah, let's, let's go for it. But, you know, you haven't seen an algo stable you know, I don't know if, if we're counting like Frax or Fae, they're much smaller supply. They kind of have, you know, maybe something going on there, but of the like near coin of UST of all these things, I, you haven't seen an algo stable work in reality, in my opinion. So I'm, I, I'm all for the, like, you know, take the VC money here. Like, don't, don't complain. Like they'll defend the peg, but I don't think, uh, I don't think any of these are like
5: live products. I'm not impressed. (laughs)
1: Dustin, any thoughts?
5: I'm trying to, trying to deduce what the question is, but if it's are algo stables, um, successful, then I, I, I think you've got to break it up in two phases, right? you got the first phase is essentially the growth stage. I need to get a bunch of supply out there. Uh, the second stage is figuring out, can it be productive? And that's where you can say, is this successful or not successful? It's really kind of unfair, in my opinion, to judge, kind of like in the supply expansion phase, is it successful or not? Uh, just it doesn't really make any sense, right? So, like, you take the the Luna model. It's a totally different model than Die. Die, like, we're going to be safe, you know, safe step by step. Luna saying, you know, screw it. I'm going to get as much supply as I possibly can, and then we'll figure out how to be, uh, you know, productive afterwards. So that's like it, to me, that's a, kind of a, a good approach because, like, from a stable perspective, you really do win the ball game if you get a lot, a lot of supply. Um, Do you count
3: the supply if it just ends up in anchor? Right, like I can mint thirty billion of a stablecoin, lock twenty nine billion nine hundred ninety nine mm-hmm. million in a smart contract, and then I only need to defend defend the peg on one one stablecoin outstanding. Then all of a sudden, like, would you say I have the most successful stablecoin project in the world? Because I'll, I'll I'll code it up tonight. Right, like it's not <laughs>
5: Mike. Know, can I get I in on this. Count. It Does it count, is my question. <laughs> I I mean, if the end state is, you know, 80% of the supply is in Anchor, then that's probably not successful, right? Um, but I, I don't think that's what anyone probably envisions the end state to be uh, in a successful scenario, right? Um, the, the way I see it is, like, you're going to want a bunch of supply, whether it's in, you know, Anchor or whatever. Uh, initially, that's fine. Uh, but it, it, the second phase of the game is really, all right, now what do I do? where does it go next, right? Does it go into Astroport? Does it go into other chains like Avalanche? Does it go into maybe these partnerships with Snaps, right? So is it do you start to see it get used more in like the L two wars or wanna call it? Uh that's that's really what you gotta start judging next is, you know, how effective is it coming out of Anchor? Um I think I think the peg risk thing is kind of overblown in my opinion. Like it, it's we're not gonna just flip a switch and we're gonna see billion dollars flip out of anchor, I think. I think people kind of know what we're doing here, to some degree.
4: You also have the locking mechanism, right? Too was it three weeks or something?
2: For for anchor, yeah. So I have a bit of a tinfoil on um, anchor and uh, Terra Luna, right? So I think if you buy a dollar worth of USD. I think they make more money that they pay out in a year, you know, so they they pay out about 20% in a year, but I think they hold enough for the supply that the math of it works out in their favor, that if you buy one USD and even if you lock it on anchor, even if you get the, even if you get the 20% at the end of the day, the, like the, the, uh, the team that's backing it, or whether it's like TFL, LFG, whatever, all of them combined, they make enough money off of that $1. And you know, And using that, and they understand that, and using that, they've um, they've grown it enough for it to have, in my opinion, escape velocity. I think there is, in my opinion, very little peg risk now. They have enough funds backing it, like ten billion or something like that, right? So two, three billion worth of Bitcoin plus uh, additionally like more funds. So I think very like unlikely that the peg breaks. I think the only thing that can happen is some. A bigger boy comes with a uh, um with like a larger balance sheet and gives twenty five percent or thirty percent on their uh on their stable coin. And I thought uh Nier may have been that protocol or I mean maybe Justin Sun, maybe that uh you know, maybe that billionaire who's willing to do it. Other than that, I don't see how like USC now loses its like dominance. It's become it's become so big, right? Like I mean, they've they've sunk their teeth into everything.
1: I mean the the okay. answer to that is regulatory though, right? Like like, there's regulatory risk, uh, you know, uh, amongst all stable coins. And so, uh, you know, like, if you take it from the counter-perspective of, like, USDC and Circle and Coinbase, like, they've uh, obviously taken a, a very conservative approach. And if, like, we get to this end state where, say, like, the U.S. government has to adopt some sort of U.S.-pegged stable coin, and they... Uh, like, praise God, don't end up making their own, then, like, what are they going to pick? Uh, whether it's, like, white labeling a bunch of them uh, or picking ones that, like, are already established that they consider to be the most regulatory compliant. So I think that's really the, the like, you know, like, if you talk about, like, the, not bare, bare case per se, but
3: a uh, potential roadblock for UST. I do think, DGEN, disclaimer here, but one of the interesting things about Uh, U.S.T. essentially is like as soon as they started acquiring Bitcoin as a reserve asset, I I think it actually fundamentally changed like the um, changed the prospects of the network. So from a purely protocols that exist standpoint, uh, there's nothing on uh, Terra that we haven't seen anywhere else. Right. Like there's not there's not like a huge innovation happening there. I think the real innovation happening here is you can now run the sailor strat whereas Sailor has to go use the revenue and balance sheet of his company to go to the market to acquire X dollars at X rate to buy X amount of Bitcoin. Uh, Terra can print the dollars and just kind of make the dollars out of thin air and buy Bitcoin and put it on the balance sheet. And then, you know, it's it's a little bit of a gamble here. But if Bitcoin pulls some multiple, all of the sudden you're partially reserved stablecoin is now over collateralized so you can issue even more to buy more bitcoin to even get to a peg right so i think if you want to play like a kind of levered DGen gamble on just bitcoin through a protocol that can print its own dollars you know that becomes kind of interesting so i would like to see near do this but with ETH, and then someone do this but with solana and all of the sudden it gets a lot more interesting
4: it's kind of like a reverse rug pull, right? Like if you were like the U.S. government and you started, hey, okay, USD back is backed by gold. And then, oh, wait, it's only backed th- by a little bit of gold. And then, oh, wait, it's not backed by any gold, right? And I think that's what Frax is doing. Like, hey, you know, it's completely back. Okay, now it's 85% back. And now it's, you know, they're tearing, tearing it down. down. It's almost like Terra's doing it in the reverse. They're saying it's backed by nothing. Oh, wait, okay, we'll add some BTC. Oh, we'll add some Avalanche. And sort of filling that up. As maybe these prices appreciate, so yeah. I think that's interesting. I just buy something to that.
1: I know we're uh, coming up on on uh, time. Uh, any any last thoughts on uh, uh, any of the topics we discussed before we uh, call it a call it a day? Cool. All right, well, uh, everyone, thank you for coming to the inaugural Masari Happy Hour. Uh, we're looking to do these uh, every couple of weeks. And uh, so go ahead and, and hit that follow button on the Masari account to get notified for uh, when the next one comes up. And
0: thank you all for joining. Special shout-out to the talent as well. Thank you, guys. Uh, send these, these gentlemen a follow. Um, keep tabs on articles that they drop, so on and so forth. 4 to 5 p.m. Eastern on Wednesdays, like Mason said. Um, We'll be doing them bi-weekly to start. Uh, And if things go well, you might see us every week. Thanks, everybody. See you, everyone. See you. Thank you, guys. See you, guys. Thank you.